Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Labor unions seem to be having a moment. That is at least according to a recent Gallup poll that shows U.S. approval of labor unions at the highest point since 1965. The latest approval figure comes amid a burst of 2022 union victories across the country, with high-profile successes at a major American corporation such as Amazon and Starbucks. The National Labor Relations Board has even reported a 57% increase in the union election petitions filed since the first six months of the fiscal year 2021. To dig into the labor law issues that this brings about, we turn to Professor Michael Duff. Professor Duff joined the SLU Law faculty this fall and is the co-director of the William C. Waffle Center for Employment Law. He is an expert in labor law, having had a previous career as a labor lawyer for the National Labor Relations Board at Philadelphia and Minneapolis. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So first, let's talk about this recent surge um, in organizing activity across the country. We've seen, like I mentioned, Starbucks, Amazon, Chipotle, and we have even seen um, a unionization of like I, I would consider, but you probably wouldn't like some non-traditional sectors like museums, I heard in like Philadelphia. So um, why do you think this has happened? Like what is driving these changes? Well, I think at the most fundamental level uh, the pandemic uh, stirred all kinds of uh, all kinds of things up. We had uh, uh, workers who were uh, dislocating. We had workers, working in places where they might not have worked previously. So there's a lot of differences in the way that ways that people work. But, you know, uh, one of the things that I pay attention to, Jessica, is uh, the extent to which the activity that appears to be uh, happening uh, in the news actually translates into victories for unions uh, in elections. And the, uh, the election rate in terms of uh, the membership uh, of unions uh, over the last several years has remained flat in the private sector at about 6%. Um, mm-hmm. It's changed very little. Um, and I'm looking right in front of me. Here's the headline that I have from the Bureau of uh, Labor Statistics news mm-hmm. release. Uh, in 2021, the number of wage and salary workers belonging to unions continued to decline mm-hmm. um, me- uh, negative 241,000 to 14 million, uh, million. and uh, the percent who are members of unions, union membership rate was 10.3%. So if we go back and look at 2020, 2021, up right. into the beginning of 2022, the rates of membership are actually declining. So what this suggests is that there's an awful lot more news about unions. Mm-hmm. I'm not persuaded that uh, the news is translating into what I consider to be uh, union activity. Now, you mentioned an increase in filing at the National Labor Relations Board. I do mm-hmm. think it's possible that more workers are filing petitions, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe we can get into, um, you know, the question of, whether filing for an election translates into an, a, a union election victory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I feel like we had we had quite a few, if I'm recalling, um, elections 
from Amazon, but I think only one, you know, successful one or two, right? I mean, the ratio is yeah. very. Uh, we've had a couple of notable losses recently and withdrawals right. of petitions and so forth. And what I always tell my students is that uh, talk to me about all of this in about a year or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that's because long experience has uh, taught me that what uh, appears to be happening on the surface is not always what's happening in fact. And maybe I should just say that, um, you know, I have a long labor uh, history. Right. Um, I, um, uh, I was uh, a union organizer, uh, and, I, and I hesitate to admit uh, how far <laughs> back this goes, but I was uh, organizing unions in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, I was a blue collar worker, a union uh, affiliate, a union organizer for 15 years mm-hmm. uh, before I went to law school in my uh, early 30s. And when I got out of law school, I was with the NLRB for a decade. So mm-hmm. um, so I have a certain kind of perspective on um, union movements, when right. things are actually happening, when they appear to be happening, but maybe aren't happening. And uh, my watchword is always, uh, let's wait a little bit and see what's what, what the situation really is. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of talking about your experience, right? Or what I have seen, like organizing tools have certainly changed since, you know, the, you know in this last re- most recent like union surge. How do you think that has impacted this new wave, like, you know, things that you might have used or different, obviously different tools um, that people have at their disposal right now, right? Oh, it's undoubtedly uh, changed the organizing uh, terrain uh, quite a bit. I'm, I uh, I know a number of union organizers. And one of the things I think, um, uh, one of the things that happens is that you have immediate contact with potential voters. So you mm-hmm. can electronically be in touch with a, with a prospective voter. Um, but of course, that's been true for some time now. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so I repeat, if you go back a number of years, what you find is a union private sector rate of about 6%. Um, you know, a couple of tenths up, a couple of tenths down. Right. But right around that uh, area. And so uh, technology didn't just start happening this year or last year. So uh, to me, um, I I, I don't doubt for a second that it's changed things. I don't doubt for a second that unions use these tools um, to organize workers. But at the end of the day, you're, you're not getting a situation where workers, in fact, are selecting unions as their um, collective bargaining uh, representatives. There's a lot, a lot of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but I don't see evidence of it in terms of uh, what the statistics are showing regarding uh, the actual union membership in the United States. How do you account for the discrepancy, you know, between these high approval that we've talked about and then also this little membership that you're saying? How, how do you account for that? Well, I think there has always been a discrepancy, even when approval levels of the public were down somewhat. Um, mm-hmm. It was rare that those approval levels weren't up around 40 uh, percent, even when unions were were um, relatively unpopular. Right. So mm-hmm. I think there's always been a discrepancy between the number of people who said that they approved of unions and workers who actually vote for unions in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Part of that, part of the reason for that is that there is a fierce employer resistance mm-hmm. um, in the workplace to uh, to unions, some of which is 
legal under our laws, some of which is um, some of which is illegal. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but I do think that it's not a recent phenomenon that there is a discrepancy between uh, what workers have uh, basically uh, uh, what people have said they feel about unions and whether um, employees actually vote for unions. Uh, I used to run union elections, you know, and it's a funny Mm -hmm. thing. you're in a little room and you've got a little uh, uh, voting box and there's a, a, a there's a voting booth and uh, workers line up and they uh, and they cast ballots and uh-huh. people actually count these ballots and they're uh, they're officially tallied. And uh, at the end of the day, employees either do or do not select unions as their collective bargaining representative. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tend to focus hardest on. Mm hmm. Um, okay. You're bringing it to your question. You're kind of, you're, you're, uh, flowing right through like my question line up here. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when we're talking, you, you talked about like the intimidation, right? So, um, by the companies that, I mean, this week I actually saw that the national labor relations board put out a memo warning about like the, the harms of like employer s- surveillance. And you mentioned there's some sort of something, some of these, tactics that are legal and and whatnot so what where is that line and like what kind of recourse or legal recourse do organizers have when when stuff like that happens well it has always been an unfair labor practice Mm -hmm. uh to surveil the uh protected concerted activities of employees or to indeed to create the impression of surveillance uh so uh i think What's different now is the the means that employers can use to engage in that surveillance. So if I'm secretly um, watching your internet activity, mm-hmm. um, and that and and that monitoring is directed at your protected concerted activity, that's an unfair labor practice. So the issue is disentangling. Uh, monitoring of protected concerted activity from uh, monitoring that an employer uh, might legitimately have um, uh, do in its uh, in its workplace. And how do you tell the difference uh, when you're investigating those kinds of cases? They're difficult kinds of cases uh, mm-hmm. to investigate. And what we do in the law is we tend to say certain kinds of activity is presumptively protected right so you 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 can um you can talk about union activity you can talk about your pay you can talk as a group amongst employees about what we call concerted activity and if the employer is monitoring you while you're doing that the presumption is that that's unlawful now the employer may be able to say hey we have a really good reason right they may be able to rebut the presumption of uh, illegality. Uh, we had a good reason for monitoring the way that we did, right? And so this is a this is a real concern um, uh, in in a technological era. But anyone who imagines that there are easy answers to these questions mm-hmm. um, is not thinking the pro- not thinking about the problem clearly. Because mm-hmm. uh, about the best we can do is get into a situation where we compel employers to justify um, monitoring employees, watching employees, whatever it is that we're claiming that the employer is doing. But there are difficult uh, problems to untangle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned earlier, I mean, quite a few, a few times, collective bargaining. So like, I hear, obviously, that's a huge part of, I don't know, the huge benefit of, of 
unionizing, but can you, I think I understand what that means, but can you break down that benefit um, for non-labor lawyers like myself? Sure. The the idea is that um, once a majority of employees in a workplace support a union, um, they vote for the union. Uh, the employer has a legal obligation to recognize the union as their collective bargaining representative. That representative then negotiates an agreement with the employer that's applicable to all of the employees who are represented by the union in mm-hmm. that workplace. And you can think of a collective bargaining agreement as almost like a trade agreement. It sets all kinds of terms that are applicable in the workplace, rates of pay, um, vacation, um, sick hours, uniforms, you name it, right? And the benefit to the employee is that these things are set out in black and white. Uh, I know what the benefits of my employment are. There's no guessing. Um, uh, I don't have to worry about um, favoritism in the workplace. Everybody gets the benefit. Everybody knows what the benefit is. It isn't just the boss's nephew with due respect to the boss's nephew. Uh, it's not just the boss's nephew is going to get that benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think more than anything else, if there was one thing when I was an organizer and an employee would ask me, well, why do I need a union in my workplace? What, what is the, what is the real benefit? I think, um, obviously rates of pay are very important. I know what I'm, I know what the employer has promised to pay me. Uh, but another thing that I get out of unionization is that I cannot be fired or an adverse action cannot be taken against me mm-hmm. unless, um, ultimately, if the union and the employer can't agree on my situation, I could have an arbitration before mm-hmm. a, a, an arbitrator. So arbitrary conduct in the workplace, like I'm going to be fired for no good reason. Um, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. No, most union contracts have a protection against discharge except for just cause. Mm-hmm. And so once you have a just cause provision in a union contract, then um, then if the union wants to, if it can't resolve the issue with the employer um, informally without the need to go to an arbitration, you can have an arbitration, mm-hmm. right? And so your job is protected in a way that it simply is not under law uh, unless you belong to certain statuses, which is the subject of your employment law class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. This may have, so if we have, you know, people are voting for, to be unionized or not, and then members pay dues, correct? Right. Well, okay. yes, yes. Okay. So not everyone at the Amazon factory is going to participate. It's not mandatory, right? Okay. So, so here's what happens essentially. Um, so uh, as a union member, you have to pay full union dues, okay? Mm-hmm. But you're not required to be a member of a union to be represented. Let's say the union right. is 52% to 48%, right? And so you say, I'm one of the 48% who oppose the union, and I don't want to join. I don't like the union. I don't want to join the union. Uh, do I have to join the union? The answer is no. But what you do have to pay is the cost of maintaining, uh, let's call it the collective bargaining apparatus 
in your workplace, right? Okay. And the reason for that is whether you're a union member or you're not a union member, if you get fired in your workplace unfairly, right, in violation of the collective bargaining agreement, the union has a duty to represent you, whether you're a member of the union or not. So what the law says is, look, you don't have to um, pay union dues if the union supports some political candidate that you find odious. Mm-hmm. But what you do have to do is at, le- at least pay for the cost of the administration of the collective bargaining agreement in the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you're contributing to what you get, which is protection within the collective bargaining union. In the same way, you get the contractual wage rates. Mm-hmm. In the same way, whatever the union contract says, Regarding uh, who's paying for uniform cleaning, if uh, if the employer pays for that, you get that too. So you get all the benefits of the collective bargaining agreement. Um, okay, so um, so the U.S. Supreme Court recently agreed to hear a case involving labor unions and may call, if I'm understanding it correctly, may call into question the issue of striking its tool in disputes. In the the cases of Glacier, Northwest Inc. versus International Brotherhood of Teamsters, what um, will this case address and will there be any impact on the recent push for unionization that we've seen? Uh, full disclosure, I'm a uh, um, a uh, former member of the Teamsters Airline Division, right? So I'm a a long-term uh, Teamster. Uh, okay. Having said that, no, I don't think there will be uh, a tremendous impact on uh, union organizing, nor do I think the case is as dramatic as is being represented in the news just now. Mm-hmm. The facts of this case are fairly straightforward. Uh, the union was about to go on strike. Uh, they drove cement trucks. They timed their strike so that the cement would dry and go bad as they were going on to strike. It destroyed oh cement. Now, um, the question is, could the state of Washington enforce its tort law? I also teach mm-hmm. torts, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, could it enforce its tort law against the union? And the general answer whenever you have a conflict between federal labor law and state law, is that the federal labor law trumps. Everybody Mm -hmm. understands that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, there are some areas of law where if the state has um, um, a locally uh, rooted feeling, that's the phrase from the case case law, uh, Mm -hmm. then, uh, then the state can enforce its own law. So, for example, violence is one example. Uh, you don't get to say there was a um, strike going on, so I was entitled to uh, to punch somebody in the nose mm-hmm. in the course of the strike, and nobody can enforce the criminal law against me. Why? Because it's a it, it's um, um, the feeling uh, is locally rooted that I, we should be able to enforce our criminal law against uh, against even even unions, even mm-hmm. employees that are engaging in uh, engaging in working conditions. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So the question is, what about destruction of property? And believe it or not, that was not as clearly set out huh. uh, as you might think uh, in the uh, in the year 2022. We didn't have the clear. We haven't had the clearest answer about what trumps when uh, a union is accused of having destroyed the employer's property mm-hmm. versus committed versus having committed violence. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, and so I think what the U.S. Supreme Court 
uh, is going to do is um, report a decision, an opinion that says uh, that unions aren't allowed to destroy property in the context of strikes. I'm I'm not among those people who think that this uh, particular case is going to mean the end of strikes as we know them. I think Mm -hmm. that's an overreading of the case, and I don't agree uh, with that interpretation. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like I've heard... (laughs) Considering our most recent symposium, um, I think we came to a conclusion that sometimes the media pulls out a case that actually doesn't have a ton of impact. It just um, reads that way. So one of the things I think is interesting is I wonder whether we're getting so much press about certain labor issues because some of the um, some of the journalists themselves are involved in labor issues or they're beginning to understand more about what labor is, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Because I've seen a number of cases where I thought the journalists had, um, had the case wrong. Mm. Um, They, um, the, the case was uh, 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 embellished dramatically um, Mm -hmm. in certain kinds of ways. Um, I can tell you that as a labor law professor or teacher, uh, I am very reluctant um, to sign on to some of the things that journalists call me with when they when they have huh. um, they have certain kinds of ideas about what the significance of a case is. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I've really wondered whether the fact that we have a younger cadre mm-hmm. of uh, journalists um, it really has changed the coverage yeah. of labor generally. Also, um, you know, the in party, the in presidential party right now, the in political party mm-hmm. is um, is uh, oriented more favorably towards uh, unions. And mm-hmm. so I think that's bound to get you some more uh, press uh, coverage. But that the case we were just discussing about the strike and the concrete that went bad yeah. is a great yeah. example of a case that I think. Um, is not nearly as significant as what I'm what I'm hearing in the news. Right. And and you know again, um, I say that as someone who's been teaching labor law a long time, has been involved in labor law a long time, mm-hmm. um, and I would say I'm very labor friendly. I think mm-hmm. that um, workers should have the right to unionize. Right. Uh, and right. yet I look at certain cases and say. Uh, this case is not about what people are saying it's about. It is not as significant as is being claimed. And that happens to me quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So first of all, I found, I found another, like, you know, I, I feel like we're seeing a big, we've talked about today, a lot of the, this push towards more unionization and also people talking about it more, right. To your point. Yeah. Um, even this week, I saw Home Depot in Philadelphia. So I'm pushing toward, I think it was the first Home Depot. Um, yeah. Which is kind of, to me, that's a little strange that we're seeing this. And you're like, wait, really? Um, so yeah. Two, two, one kind of, I don't know, maybe there is something I noticed that I had to bring up. Um, and two, so two questions. First, Philadelphia, you worked there. I feel like I'm seeing, I see a lot. I mean, I think that's where the museums are that I'm hearing about. Is there, is there a connection or is it just really random? I mean, you, I know you have had history there. Um, so is, is Philadelphia just like a hotbed for union? Um, yeah, actually it, it actually is. Philadelphia okay. is a, uh, a hotbed for, uh, labor unionizing. In fact, um, 
if you go way, way back in labor history in the 1830s huh. and 1840s, carpenters were unionizing in um, in Philadelphia, right? Hmm. Um, there, there are extant records of Thomas Jefferson com- uh, complaining about unions in Philadelphia that were slowing things down uh, in, in town. So that's how far back that goes. Wow. Um, so I do think there's something to do. That. And by the way, um, I'm not claiming that there isn't union, um, increased union membership. Right. Mm-hmm. What I'm claiming is that at the moment, I don't have evidence of it. I don't have right. statistics that support mm-hmm. the idea that we have this onrush of people joining unions. What mm-hmm. I see is activity, mm-hmm. the activity being reported on, but I have not seen evidence that act, that activity is translating itself into union membership. What I see is a private sector union membership rate of about 6.1%. Yeah. That's yeah. the last reported figure. Was that, and that's a 2022 figure? Yeah. Okay. Early 2022 is the, is the date. So, that I mean, it is possible that we could yes. see an increase, but it would still have to be dramatic, I, I think, to kind of yes. go with the fervor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and we'll know, I mean, if there is this level of activity, mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll get some good insights into yeah. it when the Bureau of Labor Statistics next mm-hmm. reports. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if we get a report that shows a union membership rate that isn't changed much, then we have to wonder, well, what, what is going on? What is mm-hmm. the disconnect between what seems to be a lot of labor activity and what is translating on the ground? Now, some people will say, well, the reason you're not getting more union membership is because of employer resistance, because right. of, un, uh, you know, illegal conduct uh, and mm-hmm. so forth. And if that's the case, then we should see that, too. I right. don't think that is the case. I mm-hmm. think I think that the the situation in the United States, if we look at American labor law. Uh, with clear eyes and 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 openly, what we see mm-hmm. is that employers have lots of rights under our labor law to lawfully oppose unions in ways that discourage membership. And that's a deeper conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, our labor law doesn't look like the labor law in France. We don't have uh, a history like French history. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so the sort of the, the, the the union density that you're going to get in the United States may look a lot different. Time Mm -hmm. will tell. I'm willing Mm -hmm. to wait. I'll bet we all are. Uh, but, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm a skeptic because I have uh, uh, on more than one occasion been told that there is an upsurge of union activity and union membership and been mm-hmm. met with a private sector union density rate that doesn't, uh, doesn't reveal that. It is yeah. not in accord with what's being reported mm-hmm. in the news. So you don't really see, I guess it's kind of part of my last question, like you don't really see like a, a big change that's going to happen in the the labor movement or in like just the workforce in general, right. From this. I don't see evidence of a change, but Mm -hmm. I would, I'm willing to, um, to agree that uh, there are all kinds of big dramatic things going on in our economy. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's possible uh, that you, you have the beginnings of, um, of a uh, labor movement that's going to swell up and get to, I mean, let's, let's re- remember when we had the beginnings of labor law, when we had a labor statute 
um, uh, at the federal level, uh, mm-hmm. the, the union density was like uh, like over 30 percent for a period of time. Right. Wow. And 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 you, like you would know it if that's if that was happening. Right. Yeah. So if that's what's happening. We'll know it. But yeah. I in the absence of evidence, I am not willing to agree that any of that is happening until I see it with my own mm-hmm. eyes. Spoken like a true attorney. <laughs> well, that's how I see it. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. No, it really clarify. I mean, so time will tell, I think, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, thank you um, for kind of digging into some of the issues and explaining some things for me. Um, I appreciate you taking the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Slew Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.